First of all, I'd like to welcome everybody to um, uh, another meeting of the RAS Space Group. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, uh, Pat Norris from Logica CMG. Uh, I've known Pat for about 25 years now, and Pat was responsible for sending me on my first space project down to Toulouse back in 1982 uh, to work down on, uh, on a science satellite. Pat's actually been working in the space industry a lot longer than that. He started off in the 1960s working in the US on the on the Apollo um, space program. Spent most of the 70s, as far as I can remember, working for the European Space Agency, uh, helping to bring the first generation of, uh, of weather satellites to Europe. I think joined Logica about 1980 and has been really a key person in Logica's space activities for the last, uh, well, for the last 27 years. Uh, so, as I say, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker, Pat Norris. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Phil. The lecture tonight is about the space race, and I somewhat glibly entitled it in the publicity material before the event as the, the real space race, which is perhaps a little bit uh, cheeky. I guess a, a fairer designation might be to call it the other space race. We're familiar with the race to the moon in the 1960s, the, uh, the, the race to be first into space, the race to have the first human in space, and then the first to get to the moon. And that's a story that's well known. This is, tonight's lecture is about the other space race, which was going on at the same time, and in some ways uh, was more important. And, certain, and I will try to make the point at the end of the lecture that this other space race still has some uh, lessons that are relevant today, in today's world. So hopefully we'll start off. So this other space race, and indeed the whole of the space business, why did it start? And the, the reason was the creation of the atomic bomb in 1945, and then its success uh, of the H-bomb, uh, plus the fact that the U.S. had not only the atomic bomb, but also a long-range bomber fleet, which meant that the U.S. could safely fight against any, any other country in the world, uh, and they demonstrated the power of this uh, new force, in uh, in helping to end the Second World War in Japan at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, uh, that that uh, monopoly position that the U.S. Uh, possessed lasted only for a few years. To their surprise, the surprise of most people, the Soviets uh, uh, exploded an atomic bomb in 1949, just, just four years later, and in fact ex exploded a H-bomb just ten months after the U.S. in 1953. So uh, from being in a position, a uniquely powerful position at the end of the Second World War, the U.S. was in a, a slightly less powerful position uh, in the early 1950s. The U.S., however, did have a greater uh, arsenal of nuclear weapons, and it had the long-range bomber fleet, which the Soviets did not possess. Now, the Soviets recognized the, their weakness. Uh, they, the Cold War had developed into a, a, a bipolar uh, situation where it was the West against the East, and the Soviets recognized that without some kind of long-range reach for their weaponry, they could not uh, consider themselves the equals of the U.S. They felt at a disadvantage. They decided, however, not to try to match the U.S. in terms of long-range bombers, but instead to leapfrog and go for long-range missiles instead. Now, um, 
the, the situation in the 1950s was that uh, it was very difficult for the U.S., uh, for anybody in the West, to, uh, to find out what was happening in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is a very large country, and it was a dictatorial country, and it was forbidden for uh, foreigners to travel around the country. Indeed, it was forbidden for their own citizens to travel around the country. So uh, it was actually very difficult. You couldn't buy maps. You couldn't uh, find out where things were. Furthermore, a lot of the infrastructure of the Soviet Union had been moved during the Second World War to protect it from the German uh, advances and had, in a sense, been moved to areas which were out of sight of people in the West. Most of the little information that was available at the time came from defectors, and they, by and large, were, were unreliable. They, they perhaps did not know as much as they professed to know. Uh, this is still often the case with defectors. There is a motivation for them to appear more knowledgeable than perhaps they really are. Uh, so, so that was a somewhat unreliable source of information. And there were also surveillance aircraft which flew over the Soviet Union, but tended to only fly over areas close to the borders. And the Soviet Union is a very, very large country, so this left large parts of the Soviet Union uninspected for many years. And rumor and speculation was uh, underpinned a lot of the policy in the U.S. at the time in terms of how to respond to the, the perceived Soviet threat. And there was one particularly famous incident in 1955 where the Soviets fooled the U.S. into thinking that they were uh, rapidly deploying a large number of long-range bombers. In fact, they weren't, but it led to uh, a big... Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, cause of concern in the U.S. and the investment themselves in, in bomber, uh, further bombers. So the U.S. Re response to this was to develop a, a ver uh, an aircraft that could fly at very high altitude and could illegally uh, fly over the Soviet Union. It was the U-2 aircraft. It, co it was a, could fly above the Soviet air defenses and it could uh, take imagery and bring it back. And that was a, the, the main source or one of the most reliable sources of imagery of information about Soviet uh, military infrastructure and, and Soviet military developments during the uh, 1950s. Now, the, the spy satellite, the surveillance satellite, grew out of this situation. The, the, the U-2 aircraft was successful in its own way. It took very high-quality pictures, but it was recognized by the U.S. that the flights were very risky. Uh, one of these days, it was felt the Soviets would improve their air defenses and, and shoot, shoot down a U-2. And furthermore, the flights were, of course, very, very provocative. They were an infringement of international law, in a sense, and the Soviets uh, w were extremely incensed by them. Um, they didn't publicize their, dis their uh, distaste for them too much because, of course, it was slightly embarrassing to have to admit that they were being overflown in this way. N nevertheless, the U.S. restricted the number of U-2 flights so that only two, uh, hand, two or three a year, typically, or sometimes even less. And uh, therefore, they, the U-2s took images only of a very small part of the Soviet Union, so that there was still a very large uncertainty in the, in the knowledge in the West about Soviet military situation. So in, uh, in 1954, this is three years before the first satellite, before Sputnik, uh, the U.S. Air Force got the go-ahead to develop a surveillance satellite, and they, they started placing industrial contracts to that effect. Um, th this this uh, decision to develop a satellite long before Sputnik was was perhaps was not at all um, quixotic. Uh, the development of rockets at the time 
was uh, to the point where it was clear that within a relatively short time it would be possible to put objects into orbit. And so in anticipation of reaching that point, the, the U.S. military began the development of a surveillance satellite. And the, the technical push for this came partly from uh, advisors such as Edwin Land, who invented the Polaroid camera, and the president of MIT. They both advised President Eisenhower on this subject, and they strongly recommended that the surveillance satellite project get started. Now, the, the Eisenhower administration was concerned that if they launched a surveillance satellite and flew it over the Soviet Union, the Soviets would object strongly, would might take the matter to the United Nations and have such flights banned. And so Eisenhower, the Eisenhower plan was to first launch a civilian uh, peaceful satellite uh, on a rocket which was not derived from a missile, so it was clearly uh, for peaceful uses. And so th there was the parallel initiative to try to develop a peaceful satellite and have it launched in time for the International Geophysical Year in 1957. But then things changed uh, rapidly because the Soviets got there first. They launched Sputnik in October 1957. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of that last year. And uh, that development made matters more urgent in the West uh, because the Soviet, the launch vehicle for Sputnik was, a, in fact, a, a conversion of a, an intercontinental ballistic missile. And that, that fact was clear to people in the West. So clearly the Soviets had a missile which could carry an object weighing hundreds of kilos and it could carry it intercontinental distances. So the first, the first thing it carried was a Sputnik, which is a nice peaceful toy which made some beeping noises, but the next payload might be a nuclear warhead. That was the, the fear, that was the vision that Sputnik engendered in the West. And it gave rise to an enormous groundswell of public and political uh, pressure in, in the United States especially to do something about this perceived missile gap. The Soviets were perceived as having a lead in missiles, even though, as it turned out, that was, was not the case. But they were politicians of all parties in the U.S. pressed the administration to take action to respond to this apparent uh, lead by the Soviets. Now, the surveillance satellite, which had been started in 1954, was not going too well. Uh, it may seem hard to believe, but it was a military project which was over budget and late. Uh, this, uh, I know it's, it's, it, it doesn't sound realistic, but there you are. They obviously hadn't worked out how to do these things. So as a stopgap measure, for about a, it, it was decided to build a satellite called Corona, which had been studied a little bit in, in the sidelines of the, of the main uh, development work. And it, it was a simpler, uh, cheaper, f faster to develop uh, system, and therefore it was agreed to, after Sputnik, to, to give, the, to give the, the fast green light to develop this stopgap system, which it was hoped would be only needed for about a year until the, the real surveillance satellite system was ready. The stopgap, it turned out, was needed for 14 years. But uh, that, that, that's, and that's in a sense the story that, that I'm, I'm trying, going to try and tell. The, um, the, the, the surveillance satellite that had been given the green light in 54 was intended to, to, to use a film, to take a, a picture on a film, to develop the film inside the satellite, to scan the developed film using television type uh, technology, and to radio the image down to the earth. Uh, there's, this was a very ambitious project, and uh, it, that's why it was late and over budget. It was too ambitious. A lot of 
new challenges, uh, technology uh, development that was needed at the time. Um, and so uh, although the, the ideas were of this idea of uh, t developing a film inside the satellite and scanning it and radioing the image was in fact used later on scientific satellites to the moon and Mars and beyond. Uh, but it turned out not to be practical for surveillance military surveillance simply because of the huge, the very large volume of imagery which you require to do fully-fledged military surveillance. And the technology of the time just wasn't up to it. And so as a stopgap, Corona was was um, uh, created and was given to go ahead. Now Corona was, was to use existing technology. They took the camera from the U-2, the high-flying plane. Uh, they uh, The idea was they wouldn't try to develop the film in orbit. They would they would return the film when it was fully developed, when it was fully exposed, they would uh, put it in a capsule, it would be automatically put into a capsule and sent, returned to the Earth, it would drift down on the parachute and be collected, and then it would be taken to a laboratory on Earth to be developed and uh, processed. Uh, furthermore, they decided not to build a new satellite for this, but to use the the upper part of the rocket, the upper stage of the, of the launch vehicle, so as to save time and money, and they would use the... Uh, the facilities on that, that the launch vehicle had to have itself, namely attitude control, batteries for power, and this sort of thing. Uh, and that way, again, they save time, they hope to save time and money. And as you can see in the picture here, this is a, it looks like a rocket. In fact, it's the upper stage of the rocket, which has been converted into the surveillance satellite. And I'll show, I'll show that in more detail in a moment. Another compromise that was agreed for the stopgap was to was to accept, was to settle for the idea that you would take wide area pictures of the Soviet Union. It was felt the big problem was really just to see the whole of the Soviet Union, see what kind of facilities there were, rather than to take very, very detailed pictures of, of individual small parts of it. So they decided they could do one or the other. They could either take wide pictures at moderate amount of moderate degree of resolution, or they could take uh, high resolution, very detailed pictures of relatively small areas. The compromise for Corona was to take the wide area pictures. And uh, another compromise was that instead of radioing the images down to the earth, as I say, what happened was it would take many days. The pictures would be taken and, uh, and the satellite would continue in orbit, would keep taking pictures until the film was completely exposed. That could be a week, it could be 10 days, uh, it, and then it would have to be uh, tossed out, collected by uh, the, um, the people on the ground, uh, typically, it was collected over the Pacific Ocean, then had to be flown to America. It would take another week to reach the analysts back in Washington. So there was a time lag, and this was part of the compromise that was accepted. There was this time lag between taking the picture and the resulting image actually reaching the, the image analysts. Now, although this system was supposed to be simple, uh, it turned out it was anything but simple. It took them 14 attempts to get it right. They, they had 14 attempts to launch this new Corona system, uh, all of which, uh, 13 of which failed. Uh, it seems kind of staggering these days if, if you really had 13 in a row failures that they just kept going. But the pressure, the pressure was so strong to get information about the Soviet Union that uh, there, it was, uh, was felt that they had to get this thing to work no matter what. Um, so they, the first launch was in January 1959. So this was a year and a half after Sputnik. Uh, which failed, and another failure again in February. And they kept uh, having various failures of various kinds. Sometimes they actually got into orbit in April, 
capsule came down, but it landed in uh, just north of Russia. Uh, there's, there's various anecdotes, which I don't know the truth of, about that perhaps the Soviets uh, uh, actually recovered it. Um, I've heard other, there are other stories uh, about what happened to that particular capsule. Um, and, and by the end of that year, they, they'd had nine attempts. I mean, clearly, they weren't, there wasn't enough time between these attempts, or these launches, to really fix what, what had happened, what had gone wrong. In fact, they weren't often sure what had gone wrong, but they just felt compelled because of the, the urgency of the task to continue trying. And there was sometimes the rocket didn't work, sometimes the first stage, the second stage, sometimes the satellite didn't work, uh, it pointed the wrong way or it uh, ejected the capsule in the wrong direction. Sometimes the camera didn't work. They had a lot of problems with the camera. Uh, it, they thought that by using the U2 camera, that would be that would that would work. But it turned out that the film they were using didn't work in a vacuum. It seemed to work at 70,000 feet, which is nearly a vacuum in the U2 plane, but in orbit it didn't. So they had to develop some new film, and the uh, which they did. And then, the, if there wasn't enough pressure already, then even more pressure. Uh, in in May 1960, uh, a, a U2 was and finally shot down by the Russians. Uh, famous incident where the pilot Gary Powers uh, parachuted uh, safely out, was captured by the Soviets, was put on display, put on trial. <laughs> President Eisenhower, in a subit meeting shortly afterwards, uh, was highly embarrassed in uh, conf confronted by the Soviet leaders. Uh, major, um, major incident and, and embarrassment. So this put even more. So that was the end of U2s. There could be no more U2 flights, clearly, and so the pressure was even more firmly on the satellite to work. So finally, some months after that, the 14th attempt was successful. Um, they launched the satellite into orbit. They did the operations in orbit. The capsule re-entered, was collected, and the, the contents recovered. In fact, it, the particular one, the first one, was, was a, uh, a test. They'd had so many failures. They used it, this one as an instrumented test to check what was happening. And so you see here pictures of President Eisenhower being presented with the American flag from the capsule, the bucket as they called it, which you see there, which was actually the thing that returned from space. And by the, the, some of the pictures, you might recognize some of the faces there if you're as old as I am. Um, this gentleman here is, uh, later ran as a vice presidential candidate of the U.S., General Curtis LeMay. And uh, I put in the second picture because you can, you can see him better here. General Thomas Parr was another very uh, aggressive American uh, Air Force general. Uh, caused a number of uh, interesting incidents during the uh, Cuba uh, crisis a couple of years later. So this is this is how Corona worked. Um, uh, the, the actual first images a week came back a week later. They launched another one on the 18th of August and started to get some pictures. This is uh, this is the kind of picture they got. As you can see it's it's a bit blurred. It's, the quality is not great, but you can see this is some kind of a uh, an airfield. This was in Siberia. Um, and uh, so it was possible to see some indications of, of uh, military complexes, of industrial complexes, but uh, not very detailed. This is a picture of the aircraft catch, catching the parachuting uh, capsule as it descends. Uh, they actually had to make th have three goes at it, but third time lucky they, they did pick it up before it fell in the water. Uh, and indeed, this this part of the whole program looked kind of Heath Robinson-like almost, um, but in fact it worked every time. They, 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 they never thereafter had, had any particular problem with this process. It seemed to work pretty well, and it was some of the other um, uh, apparently more straightforward things which, which sometimes didn't work. Uh, so, success at last in August. Uh, 
And uh, this, this first flight in August that took pictures, uh, took 1,400 frames, doesn't mean much to you, but in the, those 1,400 frames comprised more imagery than all the U-2 flights had ever taken of the Soviet Union. So just that one satellite in, in a few days. However, the, the resolution, the quality of the imagery, uh, the graininess of the imagery, if you like, was not particularly good. Um, it was, uh, you could only, the smallest objects you could discern were sort of about 10 or 15 meters uh, on a side instead of, and they were supposed to be about five times better. However, they did, they did uh, detect a whole series of uh, military installations that they didn't know about before, uh, uh, 64 airfields, um, and many of these unknown urban areas which had uh, defectors had told them about, but they, they hadn't known where they were because there were no maps published. But the quality was, was, was not yet good enough to clarify how many missiles the, the Soviets had. And they had more flights, but sadly, more failures between then and December 59. Um, so, uh, so the, the, there was a presidential election in November 1960, and the missile gap, which I had mentioned earlier, um, remained a political issue and uh, is felt to have helped President Kennedy, or uh, John F. Kennedy, to win the election against uh, his Republican rival, uh, Richard Nixon. Um, so, so, so this, this uh, lack of information or this um, information, this feeling that the Russians had a, the Soviets had a, a lead in missiles, did is felt to have influenced the outcome of the, the 1960 uh, presidential election. So let's let's just take a look now. By the time uh, there were three successful flights in the following uh, summer, it was 1960. Uh, the um, you can see. Let me first of all point to this image. This is a uh, an, this is a typical coverage. That the images that the Corona satellite would take of the Soviet Union. This is one flight. It would last three or four days, and it would uh, take this many pictures. You can see the way it it comes over in various orbits, and it takes these pictures. Um, so you don't get the whole Soviet Union with one flight, but if you have three or four flights, you, you will hopefully get coverage of the whole country. Now, by comparison, a U-2 flight would typically, for instance, maybe be something like that. That would be one U-2 flight. In fact, probably a bit less than that. But that would, that would be typical of a U-2 flight. So you can see the, the enormous um, improvement in coverage that, that was immediately provided to the American military and intelligence uh, community by the pictures from these this Corona uh, satellites. Now, before the Corona, the last intelligence estimate, which is, was published, or which was uh, issued, sorry, not published, issued by the uh, U.S. Uh, intelligence community prior to the, these three successful Corona flights, said that the Soviets, in two years' time, three years' time, would have 700 intercontinental missiles, according to the U.S. Air Force. Uh, would, uh, the, the Navy and Army, who had a different agenda, said, no, 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 no. They're only going to have about 150. And the CIA took a kind of a middle ground, said to be about 400. Now, there, as you can see, there were these sort of biases, if you like, in the information that the various military communities took a view on. But I think the important thing is that there was this huge uncertainty. Who knew that... Uh, they just couldn't say whether there would be 100 or 700 uh, missiles in the Soviet Union in, in two years' time. After the first uh, three successful corona flights, uh, it was possible. The, the next official intelligence estimate issued by the community said there are currently less than 25. 
and there will be less than 100 in 1963 because it takes a few years to, to roll them out and they could tell from the, the, the infrastructure that had been deployed that there could not be more than 100. Uh, and indeed, the following year, they were able to issue an estimate said, there are in fact only six Soviet missiles. And in fact, they are very difficult to deploy. They are slow to deploy, they're uh, unwieldy, and therefore you couldn't, it would be impossible for the Soviets to rapidly deploy hundreds of these. So from the, uh, the 700 maybe speculated by the Air Force before Corona, uh, it turned out there were a half a dozen. So in fact, there was a missile gap, but it was in the US's favor. Uh, and uh, this, this uh, fact, in a sense, alone justified, was felt by the American administration, justified the expenditure they had made in building Corona and uh, struggling with its development and, and making it a success. Suddenly, they had an accurate picture of Soviet military uh, infrastructure. Uh, and the Soviets uh, were not standing still. However, their, their, the urgency for them was, was much less. They were not forbidden for traveling around the U.S. by and large. Most of them were not. They could uh, buy a map, which might show where Air Force bases were. Uh, they could then walk around the perimeter of those bases. They could take photographs. They could buy local newspapers and magazines, which contained interviews with the base personnel. Uh, they could, uh, of course, read uh, congressional papers, uh, budget uh, submissions, all, all the usual things that talk about uh, military budgets. So, so the Soviet knowledge of the U.S. was, was of course, much, much more uh, intensive and much, much more detailed than, than the, the inverse. However, when, in 1960, the U.S. launched the first weather satellite, uh, that beamed down pictures of the, so of the Soviet Union. They were very, very wide area pictures. They didn't show any detail. But nevertheless, when the Soviet leaders saw those pictures, they thought to themselves, this is something we need to do ourselves. We can't have other countries taking pictures of us if we're not doing the same. So they uh, they initiated a program to develop a surveillance satellite called Xena-2. Uh, like the U.S., they said we need to do it very, very quickly. So they said, well, let's let's use the Soyuz satellite, which they were already developing for their uh, their cosmonaut uh, program. It has a recovery capsule, so they thought, well, let's let's use that recovery capsule, uh, take pictures, and then uh, recover the film in these capsules. And, and in fact, the first one of those was was successfully deployed uh, for a, a publicity stunt, if you like, with dogs in in August 1960. And and they uh, the first of the Xena two uh, surveillance satellites, in fact, uh, the first attempt to launch one was November 61. So they they were able to get in a position to try and launch a surveillance satellite rather quickly. And they got their first, they had a number of failures, I think it was about nine failures, and they uh, recovered their first successful images a year later in, in 1962. So two years after the U.S. They were about two years behind the U.S. Let's, let's just have a quick look at the two of them. It's, it seems to me it's quite interesting to see the similarities but also the differences. This is, this is of course the U.S., this is the Soviet. And uh, both, both countries decided to use this idea of a recovery capsule. They tried, both of them tried this idea of developing the film on board and scanning it and radioing it down. They gave up, both sides gave up and instead uh, reverted to using the idea of uh, sending down the, the film in a capsule and developing it back on, on Earth. Uh, that's, those are the, that's where the similarity ends. The U.S. satellites weighed um, almost two tons, which is not bad. This is, these are sizable satellites, you know. Um, 
And, uh, but the Soviet ones were massive, more than twice as big, nearly five times. The capsule which the U.S. sent back to Earth was 88 kilos, so it was, you could nearly lift it. The capsule the Soviets sent back was two and a half tons. So this, you know, they, they did things differently. Um, they, the U.S. recovered this on a parachute in the air. Well, you're not going to recover a two and a half ton. Uh, <laughs> so so the, the, the Soviet capsule was recovered on land. Um, now, so, so although the Soviets was, was impressive, they were big, heavy, uh, and so on, and that was, in a sense, a good thing, they, then came the problems. The, what the Soviets did was they returned the whole camera. The U.S. only returned the film roll. The camera stayed in orbit and eventually burned up uh, um, when, the, when the satellite re-entered. Uh, now, what, this gave the U.S. an advantage because what they could then do was have multiple re-entry capsules and have multiple film rolls or cut the film roll when it was halfway through. Whereas the Soviets, uh, you return the camera, well, that was the end of the mission. So um, on the other hand, the Soviets could reuse the camera. They could launch it again. So there was some saving. But nevertheless, the fact that the U.S. could have multiple capsules was a big advantage. Uh, another feature was the Soviets, uh, because this Soyuz uh, Zenit was based on the Soyuz, was it designed for astronauts or cosmonauts, it was, in fact, uh, at atmospheric pressure. So their camera, they could use a camera which did not have to be specially developed to work in vacuum. Uh, whereas the U.S., uh, as I mentioned, had problems with their camera, with the film in particular, working in a vacuum. Uh, so in some ways that made life easier for the, for the Soviets. So uh, looking at it then in pictures, just to kind of make the point, um, you don't, over here, you don't really see the difference between, uh, you don't really get the feeling that this is twice as heavy as this, but you do when you look at the rockets they used. These are the Soviet rockets that were needed to launch the, the, uh, the Zenith, whereas here is the relatively smaller, by comparison, smaller rocket used by the U.S. to launch, uh, to launch Corona. Uh, and the fact that these two Coronas are just two in the, in the long uh, series that they produced, the smaller one was one of the early ones and the bigger one one of the later ones. In fact, this, um, this shows the, over the many years where Corona was used, these are the various, some of the, the versions of it that were developed. Uh, starting with the early ones on the left, which was just one re-entry capsule and one camera there. Uh, I'll show this in more detail on the next slide. Uh, whereas at the end they have, you have two cameras to give, to give a stereo image and you have two re-entry capsules to, to allow you to, uh, uh, send back some film, stay in orbit, continue taking pictures and then send back some more. Which was uh, felt to be a uh, operationally was, was a, a useful feature. Um, but there were lots of other things. That's just uh, kind of showing the, the scale. Uh, things you couldn't see that were improved, and the Soviets also improved theirs, was uh, they gradually improved the quality of the images, got rid of the blurring by this thing called um, image motion compensation. Uh, these satellites are moving over the ground at um, 18 kilometers a second. That's uh, 18 meters in a millisecond. And the, the shutter is open for about a millisecond. So uh, there's a lot of motion in the, in the image, and you have to move the camera in the opposite direction somehow to compensate. That's the compensation bit. And that was uh, not too well implemented to begin with, but gradually they got better at that. Uh, they put gradually put more fuel in so they could they could maneuver the satellites more. They could, uh, when they were wanted to look at somewhere very interesting, they would arrange so that the lowest point of the orbit 
was very low, down to way below 100 miles, and uh, take pictures at the perigee, at the, the closest point, and then they could raise the orbit again to stop the satellite re-entering. Um, I mentioned the stereo imagery, which was a big improvement for the people looking at the images. Uh, that having stereo imagery makes it a lot easier to understand what it is you're looking at. They could put more film in. They started off with, uh, I think it was something like, uh, well, there was about twice the mass of film in the in the in the, in the uh, satellites at the end of the series than at the beginning. So, which meant you could take more pictures, you could stay in orbit longer, take more pictures. Uh, the, the two return capsules I mentioned, uh, better better resolution. I mentioned that it was higher quality, but also wider imagery. They started off with not too wide an image. They were able to broaden it a little bit so they could see more of the Soviet Union on any one pass. There were other other advances. Uh, at the beginning, uh, you launched the Corona or the Zenit, and you had pre-programmed in when the camera would open. You kind of you forecast when it would be passing over areas of interest and programmed the camera to shutter to open at that point. Uh, that was that probably worked for an orbit or two, but gradually the orbits never were exactly as you had expected them to be. They gradually got further and further away from where they had you had hoped they would be. And so the camera would start opening over areas of little interest. So uh, one of the gradual improvements was to put more control into the satellite so you could radio a, a, a command to the corona to tell it to, to change the timing of the when the camera was open so that you could adjust the actual uh, point that when you took the pictures to um, to accommodate the actual orbit you find yourself in uh, that sort of that sort of thing was was gradually improved um, uh, other other improvements they tried out uh, infrared film uh, and some of the missions flew infrared film by and large, they stuck with the uh, black and white, but some of them flew. They tried some multispectral film, um, and, and sometimes that was useful, and sometimes it wasn't. They, both the Soviets and the U.S., their first few missions, half the pictures they got back were beautiful images of the top of the clouds. It was just cloud cover. So, and as you can imagine, the Soviet Union, uh, you know, northerly latitude, particularly in winter, a lot of cloud. So gradually, they uh, both countries put weather satellites into orbit, and they used the information from the weather satellites to adjust the points where the cameras would took the pictures uh, to tr take into account what they knew about the weather conditions over the Soviet Union or over the U.S. And so they, the the uh, percentage of film that was actually useful improved from the 50% uh, level that started out. Uh, just uh, one, one last picture of Corona. It just shows it in a little more detail. Here's the two cameras uh, to give the stereo shot. Of, uh, as it's uh, Here's the film. It comes out of a film cassette here. The film goes up past the two cameras. And then it's picked up on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a reel. Uh, first, first on this one. And then when that's full, they, they cut it and eject the, uh, the, the, the capsule, the recovery vehicle. And then the film is wound onto this reel, and when that's when finally all the film is used, they kick out the second recovery capsule, and the satellite is then dead. Once the film is all gone, the satellite has no no further use, and they would allow it to fall back into the atmosphere and burn up. So, and the Zenit, uh, Fred, I don't have quite as nice a picture of it, but this is uh, there were two versions of Zenit. This is the one that had a higher quality camera, uh, but again they had. Twin cameras to get, um, and uh, this this part here is the bit that 
was chopped off and, and was sent back down and recovered, and this part remained in orbit. Um, so that, that shows the, the difference between the two. Um, I mentioned here uh, some stuff about attitude stability. They uh, found that the, the Soyuz for cosmonauts wasn't sufficiently stable for surveillance, so they had to actually do quite a bit of development on, this, on the stabilization system. And what, what, one of the things that struck me when I was looking into this uh, was the, the sheer volume of these launches. These days, there are maybe a handful of surveillance satellites launched every year in the US, if that. This was every fortnight. There, was, there were 145 launches in, in about 12 years. Uh, of this corona, the wide area, one that took the wide pictures, and there was the same number of, of a, another, an Air Force satellite called Gambit, which was taking narrower, sort of precise pictures of, of narrower, area, smaller areas. Again, uh, so between, each of them went, was putting them up about at once a month. So between the two of them, it was about every fortnight. And they stayed in orbit initially for about three or four days. Gradually that got longer because they had more film, they had two capsules and so on. Um, so the launch rate was staggering, um, and you know launches were expensive. They're they very expensive now. They were very expensive then. Uh, the Zenit was the same. They there were two versions again of Zenit: one that took wide area pictures, one that took narrow, very detailed pictures. And again, between the two of them, they were launched every two or three weeks, year after year after year. Um, and uh, well, I give the numbers there, so you could see that they. Um, this was. Uh, an enormous commitment by both communities to, to, to the objective of getting reliable, unbiased uh, information about the other side's military uh, developments and deployments. Just a few words about um, how, how the politics developed over during the 1960s. Um, the, uh, the Cuban crisis was a kind of a watershed because uh, the Soviets then, uh, after, after the embarrassment which the Soviets perceived they had suffered in uh, being somehow defeated in the Cuban crisis, they uh, decided to commit to a very large buildup of missiles. Now, one way this manifested itself, and Henry Kissinger explains this in his memoirs, is that in the early 1960s, as I mentioned earlier, the the surveillance satellites were telling people that the forecasts were too high. So the satellites said, gave you lower numbers. In the late 1960s, the Soviets were deploying so many satellites, uh, so many missiles, excuse me, so many missiles, that the satellites said the numbers were relatively low, and the forecasts came out too low. And, and when, when you set the satellites up two or three years later, you found that your previous forecasts were too low. So, so there, there was a change, if you like, in the in the dynamic of the relationship between the information from Corona and Zenith and the actual military situation. Um, and these were dangerous times. Cuba itself was an extremely dangerous time. It almost came to a uh, nuclear war between the superpowers. Um, by the late 1960s, in a sense, there was a kind of a standoff where both sides could destroy the other with reasonable certainty and therefore there was hesitation on either side. But in between, in the early 60s particularly, there were hawks, uh, certainly in the US, who were advocating, let's hit the Soviets now when we can wipe them out before they deploy enough missiles so it will be impossible to wipe them out. And that indeed nearly happened during the Cuban crisis and has been documented in, in many 
of the memoirs of that time. Now, just, uh, just a point, I, I've painted this rosy picture of surveillance satellites, they, they saved the world, they were wonderful, they, they, they calmed everybody down. But, in fact, they, uh, they were a two-edged sword, surveillance satellites. Yes, they were very good in that they monitored what the other side was doing with its strategic weapons, its missiles, its submarines, its, its, uh, its bombers. But, at the same time, it, they provided targeting information for your missiles. So, so they were in a way, they were in, in some ways a destabilizing influence, uh, to some extent, because they made it possible for you to know, the good news was you knew where the other side's weapons were, the bad news was that you knew where the other side's weapons were, so you could target them. And, and that, uh, dynamic was a, uh, very, very dangerous one and led to great tension on both sides. And uh, things got worse in a sense uh, that um, it started out that uh, you could you could monitor the number of missiles the other side had because if they built a, a silo with a big hole in it and a missile, well, that told you they had one missile. By the mid, the late 1960s, they were um, deploying, not only were they deploying submarine launch missiles, which were a lot more difficult to keep track of, uh, uh, but also uh, the U.S. in particular was developing these missiles that had multiple warheads on them. Uh, which effectively made them into multiple missiles. Uh, this is a, a, uh, a photograph of one of those, um, uh, late, it's actually later than the 60s, but it, it illustrates the idea that you could have eight, uh, in this case, independent warheads coming down over quite a wide area. So they were effectively uh, independent missiles. And that made life even more difficult for the, for the tacticians to figure out how, what was the enemy's capability in terms of... Uh, of strategic weaponry. And there were, there were even more difficult problems. Cruise missiles started to emerge, at least in the early 70s, uh, as they, as they do now. Um, and they were very hard to keep track of. You didn't know the range. A cruise missile might be able to fly only 100 miles or 10,000 miles. You, it's quite hard to tell whether they were strategic or not. Um, and then in, particularly in Europe, we suffered from, we, we were subject to the situation where medium range missiles were capable of hitting us from Russia and, and vice versa. So uh, it, it wasn't simple. Let me, I just have a couple of illustrations of, of how these satellites were used. Let's look at the one on the right first. This is two pictures up here in 1961 and this one in 1962 of the same area. And uh, inside the white square is the same area. So in 61, the white square was empty. It was, it was um, rural, a rural area. In uh, 62, there was this uh, complex which the analysts could tell from having seen many more of these and inspecting them very carefully, there was a, um, a site of an SS-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, so this sort of comparison year to year allowed the people looking at this imagery to keep track of, to identify deployment of missiles on both sides. Uh, pretty clear differential there. And on the submarine front, uh, I thought I should mention that satellites were able to monitor submarines. It's, the way submarines were monitored was that it takes a long time to build a submarine, as we know. For our own Trident nuclear submarines, it takes several years to build them. And there were only two, two boatyards, shipyards in the, in the Soviet Union that could build uh, missile-carrying submarines, uh, one in, uh, in the south uh, near Crimea and one in the north near Murmansk. And, and here's, a, here's a picture from uh, a U.S. surveillance satellite in 1966 of, of some of the submarines in, in the Murmansk area. 
And so by, by monitoring what was being built in the, in the shipyards, it was possible to get a, perf a very accurate count of uh, how many uh, missile submarines, missile carrying submarines each side had. And that, that's the way, that's indeed what happened. Now, uh, just a few words about uh, what, what happened. Later developments, I talked about the, the Corona in the US and the uh, Zenit II in the Soviet Union. The Soviets first, um, finally in 1974, they, they got rid of their bulky, heavy uh, system where the whole camera was returned and they, they implemented a system more like the US one of having multiple capsules which returned the film separately and which had uh, pretty good resolution. It, it saw image items which were about 50 centimeters in size, still pretty big, and it uh, carried a lot of fuel so it could be maneuvered, and they typically stayed in orbit for about a, about a month. But this was, if you like, a, an evolution of, of the previous system. It was a better version of what they had hitherto been doing. So the, the Antar took over. In the U.S., uh, there was a... The replacement for Corona that uh, was first flown in 1971 um, was, was called the KH-9, KO-9, and the uh, newspapers called it Big Bird because it was very big. Um, it took a wider picture than the uh, Corona did, and it had uh, more detail. It showed up more detail, three times better detail. So twice as wide, three times better detail. That's six, and sure enough, it was six times as heavy. It was... 13 tons instead of 2 tons. Uh, it had five return capsules. It stayed up for a couple of months and so on. Uh, so it was the same idea as Corona, just much bigger, better, uh, much more expensive. Uh, it was nearly cancelled on several occasions because it was so expensive. And, you know, you kind of expect, if you if you make it three times as big and uh, three times as wide and twice as deep and so on, you'd, you'd get some kind of economy of scale, but it just didn't seem to work out that way. Um, and then finally, finally, uh, in 1976, uh, so twen almost 20 years after they started, uh, they came up with the first um, electro-optical, as they call them, satellite, which radioed the images down to Earth. No more return capsules, no more film. It was uh, like your digital camera, and it was like your mobile phone attached to a digital camera. So they took pictures with digital camera technology, and they sent the pictures back to the U.S., with the technology that you have in your mobile phone. And that was, finally came to fruition in 1976. Um, they, because they had no film, they could last much longer. So they lasted for years. Hence, there were only eight uh, launched over, over a 12-year period. Um, and they finally, it was only finally with this uh, KH-11 satellite that they were able to implement what had Edwin Land had advocated back in the 1950s what he called see it all, see it well, see it now, meaning see it all means wide uh, imagery, so you saw the whole of the Soviet Union. See it well meaning very detailed, so you could make out what kind of missiles there were, what kind of aircraft they were. And see it now meaning you radioed the imagery down to the earth. But it, uh, it took almost 20 years for that to be, to be implemented. Now, the, the political... Uh, Benefit of these programs manifested itself finally in the in the two SALT treaties, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaties, um, and I'll, I'll I'll try to demonstrate why I feel that these the these satellites underpinned the SALT treaties. 
Uh, the, the salt treaties were important. I think, looking back, I think we would agree the salt treaties were important because they stopped the escalation of the arms race. Salt one sort of stopped it. They both sides agreed to um, stop developing new missiles and to um, go easy on warheads. And SALT II finally did put a, a, a cap on, on warheads. Um, and you see uh, President Carter and President, um, Premier Brezhnev signing SALT II in, uh, in 1979. Um, and, of course, the, the escalation had got to the point where both sides could destroy the whole world many times over. You know, the U.S. had 9,000 nuclear weapons. The Soviets had 3,000. I mean... Goodness knows what would have happened if, if, if it had come to exchanging these weapons. So thankfully that never happened. And both, both of these SALT agreements, if you read these agreements, they are written in a way so that they can be verified by Corona and Zenith. They are phrased in terms of each side can have so many silos. It doesn't say how many warheads you can have, it says how many missile silos, because you can count the number of silos, you can't count the warheads. Uh, it said you were allowed to have a certain number of bombers. It didn't say how many bombs they carried, because you couldn't tell how many bombs were inside, but you could count the bombers. It said you could have a certain number of submarines, uh, rather than saying there were a certain number of missiles inside the submarines. And it also, importantly, these, these treaties are written so that they ref you're allowed to... Uh, they don't talk about theoretical warheads. They're very concrete, and they recognize that it takes a lot of testing to, imp to develop and uh, install and deploy a new system. So they recognize that, and uh, you're allowed to do the odd test, but you're not allowed to do enough testing so that a missile could become operational. So the, the, the treaties were very much formulated uh, with because of the existence of the satellites and were formulated to allow the satellites to verify them. So, so that, that, in a sense, is the end of the story. Let me just finish off with a few afterwords. There are many things the satellites can't do, and, and a couple of anecdotes just to illustrate. In 1967, the Arab-Israeli Six-Day War uh, was over and done before the corona film was... Uh, there was a corona flying over, took nice pictures of the Arabs and the Israelis fighting each other and their in their various battle formations, but the whole six-day war was over by the time the imagery was recovered and sent to the uh, to the uh, image analysts. So, so that that was a weakness, if you like, of this of the Corona concept. And in 1968, again in the Czech uh, spring, you had uh, some. There are some lovely Corona images showing the Soviet tanks with the white crosses on the top, so to distinguish them from the Czech tanks, which of course are identical because they were all part of the same side. Uh, but again, these pictures didn't reach the analysts until after the, uh, the whole uh, Czech crisis had, had uh, finished. But that was one of the weaknesses of the, of the technology. And as I mentioned earlier, the technology of radio transmission of images would have overcome some of that problem, some of that shortcoming, uh, but that wasn't available until the, uh, the mid-1970s. And indeed... The problem still remains today. It's still an elusive uh, objective goal, let's say in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, to have real-time surveillance from the satellites of what's happening on the ground. It's still uh, difficult, expensive, and not yet achieved realistically. Finally, let me finish on just a note about um, some thoughts for 
where we are today. Why, why might this be relevant to today's situation? There's no longer a Cold War. The Soviet Union's our great friend. It supplies an awful lot of our natural gas and so on. Uh, although, although recent events are maybe putting some question on that statement. But nevertheless, the, the Cold War is over. Uh, we no longer have fleets of uh, missiles pointed at each other. But nevertheless, uh, many, there are now several countries who have nuclear weapons, and the consequences of a nuclear weapon being fired in anger, so to speak, is it would be extremely severe. It's difficult to, it's difficult to state how severe it would be. Uh, it's also possible that a blackmail by an unscrupulous nuclear-equipped country could be possible. It seems a threat. This is the way Iran is sometimes painted in the West, uh, in, in that as being trying to achieve that situation. And of course, there's always a worry that terrorists, suicide bombers, would uh, use these kind of these horrendous weapons. Now, the the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, is the, in a sense, the the world's answer to this problem uh, was negotiated 20 year, uh, 40 years ago now, uh, administered by the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna. And in, in this treaty, important, very, very important treaty, the world countries have agreed to divide themselves into two camps. Those who have nuclear weapons, and, and there are five named in the, uh, the treaty, and those who agree never to have nuclear weapons. And then there are a few others, of course, who are on the sidelines, sometimes in, sometimes out. But the treaty was designed to 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 do this. Uh, it um, it's still uh, it is uh, it's been it is the law of the land here in the UK. The UK has signed up to uh, this um, this treaty, and in it we uh, and the other countries who have signed it agree that we will phase out our nuclear weapons. We'll try to phase out our nuclear weapons. We'll try to get rid of our nuclear weapons. That is the law of the land. And, and we will help other countries uh, develop nuclear energy, uh, atomic energy, for, for um, peaceful purposes. And, and in return for those two concessions on the part of the nuclear powers, other countries agree not to, to uh, ever have nuclear weapons. Now, it's, um, if you have a nuclear weapon, or if you are thinking of having nuclear weapons, what you, what, it would be good if you had access to reliable surveillance imagery of your enemies. And indeed, most of the nuclear powers in the world today do have access to reliable imagery of, of their potential enemies. Uh, the one fairly clear exception to that is Pakistan, which has a nuclear capability, but doesn't really have a, uh, access to surveillance satellites. And so, there's some concern that a country like, like Pakistan, I have no reason to suggest that Pakistan would in any sense react this way, but there's a concern that a country that has nuclear weapons that doesn't have reliable access to imagery might take action, might make a decision based on poor information. And that would be bad for everybody. So it's in all of our interests to try to ensure that any country which is either is a nuclear power or might wish to become a nuclear power has access to good, reliable information about its enemies uh, or potential enemies' dispositions. Um, now, the, uh, the, uh, the Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, they use satellites as one of the, one of the means for um, monitoring the uh, conformance to the treaty by various countries. Of course, their most, their most powerful weapon their most, and their most publicized weapon is to actually inspect. They have rights of inspection of all the signatories of the treaty. But in addition, they also use other information, and among which satellite imagery, to, uh, to monitor what's happening in various countries. 
And it seems to me that uh, countries uh, who are thinking of having nuclear weapons might be reassured if they had similar access to imagery as, as the, the Atomic Energy Agency. So it's, to me, there is a case for deployment of an international surveillance satellite system which would provide imagery pretty much to all countries. There would have to be some constraints. Uh, the kind of constraint you would have to put, say, would be that UN forces would would not be imaged, that they would imagery of areas where UN forces were active would be excluded from such a surveillance system. Um, but otherwise, the idea is that a country such as uh, any, any nuclear power or, or a country hoping to be a nuclear power would have access to reliable source of imagery of what's happening around them, and so they would not be uh, pushed uh, unnecessarily into action that they didn't need to take. And I could imagine that if, if, if it was agreed that such a, such a system was, was a good idea, that you could uh, create a pilot system, perhaps regionally by the EU, could uh, the European Union could um, initiate a, a sort of a pilot version of such a service. Um, you could you, 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 you'd have to work out how it would work, what sort of constraints you would put on it. Is there really a demand for such a thing? Uh, and you'd work out the operational arrangements. So that's my suggestion for how surveillance satellites might contribute to peace in today's world. Now, I, there are many topics I haven't talked about. This is, this is my last slide. Uh, and it, this just tells you what I'm not going to say. There are many, many topics on this general subject of the corona and Zenith satellites and uh, related issues and where we stand today and uh, what, what, what's happening in the world today in the same domain. U.S. and Russia. I haven't talked at all about the U.K., France, China, India, and what they were doing during the Cold War in terms of their satellites, their missiles, and so on. Uh, I haven't talked about ballistic missile defense, which is an important development. It's been uh, on and off over the years, very much on again at the moment. I haven't talked about anti-satellite weaponry, which um, is very topical after the Chinese incident uh, a year ago. Um, and uh, things like unmanned air vehicles are starting to in a sense, replace satellites, or at least are an adjunct to satellites in providing imagery in uh, military situations. Um, things like the German V-2, there's a lot of historical background, which, which I haven't touched on. Uh, some of the, the detail of negotiating the SALT treaties, uh, a lot of detail about how the satellites, uh, the performance of the satellites interacted with the requirements of the treaties, and a lot of that has been made public through memoirs, particularly of the, on the American side. Various politicians have published their recollections. A new and interesting point is that there's a now commercial satellites. You can buy imagery commercially, uh, which is better than the corona imagery of, of, uh, of that I showed you. Um, and there and the there are surveillance satellites now in orbit which are relatively low cost. Uh, uh, and increasingly that, that is that is uh, an interesting it makes it possible for small countries relatively small countries to have their own surveillance satellites um, and uh, I also haven't talked about the Hollywood view of surveillance satellites which is in some ways quite amusing um, some of the movies over the years have uh, have defied the laws of physics and the way satellites could somehow stand still and go backwards and uh, do all sorts of interesting things and uh, see through clouds and through walls and uh, do, do unbelievable things. Uh, I haven't done any of that. However, if you're interested in any of those subjects, and quite a few more, there is an easy option. 
I, I'm a lot, the, the, the lecture today was based on research I did for, for the book that I published. There are a few copies left, I think, still for sale. But you can get it online uh, or in, in the bookshops. It's in foils, for instance. Uh, but you can get it online. I'll show you my uh, website there if you're interested. Uh, so that, that's the end of my talk. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Pat. We do have time for about, um, about a quarter of an hour of question and answers. Thank you very much, Malcolm Smith, uh, Fellow of the British Interplanetary Society. Um, a fascinating lecture. Um, I was just wondering, um, are you aware of the uses that the Corona Archive is actually being put to in archaeology? Well, it's, thank you very much for mentioning that. I, I have seen one or two papers, indeed, in some of the publications of the British Interplanetary Society, uh, showing um, some very interesting... Um, historical uh, changes over the years. One, one of the great advantages of the corona imagery, and thank you for reminding me, is that we now have imagery which dates back to the 19, early 1960s and can be compared with imagery from today. And between looking at changes uh, over the years, a lot of very interesting features are, are, are displayed. But I, I, So I guess that's one aspect that you might be referring to. Uh, uh, there is also the fact, that I guess, I've certainly seen some pictures I think one of the features is that um, increasingly land has been developed on over the last 50 years, and some of this corona imagery is the only source of, uh, of images of the, the state of the, the land prior to more modern developments. And so in that sense, it's also a very important historical archive. And you can, you, of course, you can buy corona imagery now online. The, the picture I showed of the submarines is, is one such I bought it from online from the... Um, it's the U.S. Geological Service uh, sell them, sell them uh, not too expensively, but uh, they, a lot of the imagery is. And you can, you can uh, thankfully, you can uh, check it first to make sure it's not cloud covered. Uh, there is a lot of it is cloud covered, but uh, they show you a kind of a, a thumbnail, a snapshot first, so you can make sure that there's something there that you want to buy. Um, and I guess I, so. So it's an interesting uh, scientific. Uh, Repository for for uh, for archaeologists. I, th I think just just picking up uh, on the um, environmental side of things, you mentioned the cloud cover. That they also, um, I think, were using it to chart the shrinking of the Aral Sea, because again, they've got mm. historical imagery historical going imagery, back yeah. before yeah. the first uh, civilian yeah. satellites. Anyway, thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, thank you. That. That's a good point. Uh, Tony G, University College. Um, Looking at the timing, would it be correct to say that the the stimulus for the charge coupled device camera was was this work? It looks very much as if the timing was like, was that way. Well, I'm not an expert on the history of the CCD, but uh, CCDs were being developed for ground based uh, use before they were put into space, and. Um, whether that ground-based development was for military or civilian use, I'm honestly not an expert. Uh, and I can remember that the first European solid state, they weren't actually CCDs, but they were solid state. Uh, in fact, the first electro-optic satellite, the one I showed, the KH-11, did not use CCDs. It used um, diodes, I think, yeah. uh, so, which is one reason it wasn't all that good. And they continued flying the old-fashioned, if you like, uh, uh, capsule return satellites for several more years. Uh, the first CCD ones were put into orbit in, in, in the early 1980s. Um, 
But I, I don't, I think clearly there was a military dimension to developing CCD. I don't think it was specifically for space military. I think it was more for other military uses. I mean, perhaps it's something better than the Teflon saucepan. Well, the Teflon saucepan is, is an absolute myth. Uh, Teflon actually was, it was invented, as you obviously know, before the Second World War. And indeed was used during the Second World War as one of the technologies for developing the atomic bomb because it is very good at resisting corrosion. And uh, the uranium hexafluoride and other, other nasty chemicals used in atomic weaponry, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the infrastructure was coated in Teflon. So the Teflon was around for, you know, yonks before uh, the space age. Peter Hearn, previous president of the RAS. I wonder um, if the commercial satellite imagery, which is now available, which is pretty remarkable, where you can identify aircraft and number of engines they've got on and so forth, um, is that not usable as part of the international control process by countries that don't have their own satellites, such as Iran? Well, Iran's now got one. They fired one the other day, so they claim. But the, um, I would have thought it would, would it be possible to get a United Nations-type basis, which was accessible to any country, which they could verify whether or not they had a threat against them. Thank you. I, I think that's a very valid point. If the information from those satellites could be reliably made available, yes. But we saw in the first Iraq war, for instance, or sorry, in the uh, Afghanistan war just after 9-11, that the U.S. military bought up all uh, such imagery of the Afghanistan zone, area, region, uh, so that no one else could get imagery of the Afghanistan area for a while. So in that sense, um, the imagery was not reliably available to, to certain people. However, if, if one could avoid that, and in a sense, uh, I think the, the, perhaps what you are saying, what I'm saying is that, um, if you did have a, an international agreement to make imagery available to any country, you could use whatever satellites were already in orbit and, and make, uh, contractual arrangements with them so that their imagery could not be denied under certain situations. And you wouldn't necessarily have to launch totally new satellites. You could use a mix of new and old, depending on, on you know, on the nature of the contractual arrangement. You could uh, negotiate with each of the, the owners of such satellites. Uh, David Todd Ascend. Um, have there any been, have there been any instances of, like, the Ice Station Zebra scenario of falling into the wrong hands? Like, the, a bit like Pittsburgh. Uh, well, uh, a number of incidents. Um, there have been spies, and a lot of good stories about spies. Uh, the the first electro-optical satellite, the KH-11, an employee of uh, the, the U.S. military uh, got uh, became a bit unhappy, and he walked out of the office, and he stuck into his pocket the office copy of the user manual for the KH-11. <laughs> and he he drove over the border to Mexico, went down to the Soviet embassy, or, or anyway, he went to the Soviet embassy um, outside the, the U.S. and uh, sold it to the Soviets for three thousand um, dollars. Now his the Soviets therefore got hold of the a lot of you know, very very valuable information about the KH-11. Um, the bad news for him was that the Soviet official he handed it to was in fact an American spy. <laughs> <laughs> so. So he was caught, and he was put on trial, and he got a 40-year sentence. I mean, it, it, the judge said, you know, we're going to just throw away the key. Uh, this is so severe. A lot of the, the, the evidence was given in camera, so we don't necessarily know all the details. So that's an example where, where the Soviets got a lot of interesting information about the U.S. systems. 
Nick Shea from uh, Logica. Uh, thanks, Pat. Very good uh, presentation. Um, heard various rumours in the past about how the Hubble Space Telescope was actually a keyhole turned around. Could you tell us how much truth there is in that? And if it is true, why did they get the mirror wrong? <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, well, in some ways, it, it is a keyhole turned around in the sense that it is approximately the same size, it's sort of the same shape, it's assumed to be roughly the same shape, it's built by the same company, by Lockheed, uh, and the same company built the, built the mirror. The story about the mirror, the mirror for Hubble is more accurate than the mirror on, on the uh, surveillance satellites because Hubble has to work in the ultraviolet and it require, it has to be diffraction limited at, uh, all the way from the near infrared down to the ultraviolet. Uh, so it's a more complicated mirror in some ways, but the same size, I guess, one assumes, as the ones that uh, fly in the surveillance satellites. Um, I think the... So I, the real answer is I don't know why the surveillance satellite mirrors work if they did. Uh, maybe they didn't. Um, but uh, what is perhaps known is that the solar arrays on Hubble also didn't work initially. Uh, you may recall that it was a problem of the, the, the tail wagging the dog. Uh, the solar arrays, as they rotated, would, would introduce a lot of vibration into the satellite, which took a long time to, to stabilize. And this problem was known to the designers of the surveillance satellites, which had solar arrays very same, presumably similar sort of size, but they were American solar arrays rather than British ones, which were on Hubble. And the apparently the, the lucky guys who had worked on the surveillance satellites gave knowing looks to their colleagues on the Hubble program saying, ah, so you found that out, have you? Uh, so, so there was um, a lack of uh, transfer of, of knowledge Certainly on the solar array side, and presumably also on the, on the, on the mirror side. So they, they each, the black program stayed very much in their own uh, compartment, and there was not much dialogue, I guess. It was certainly limited to the dialogue between them and their colleagues in the same company working on uh, civilian programs. Okay, I'd like to ask one question myself, if I may, Pat. Um, I think, you know, with things like Google Earth, we're now seeing the, uh, the democratization, as it were, of satellite imagery, and I think that's a really good thing in general. Um, now, all the developments you've been talking about in the talk have all been led by the military. With the democratization of imagery, do you see in the future the technology push is going to come from the demand on the, on the civilian, the user applications, or do you still see the military as the driving force behind future technology development? Well, I think the, the military still are constraining the accuracy of the civilian uh, satellites, uh, the U.S. will not license, will not authorize uh, satellites that take pictures with a resolution better than 40 centimeters. Um, now, they might do in the future, but right now, they, the military are, in a sense, arbitrarily uh, preventing commercial satellites from having very, very high resolution. And I, I imagine that will continue because the military seem to feel that satellites with very, very high resolution would be a threat to their, uh, to their systems. Uh, so I think increasingly the, the push, though, is from the civilian side. The things like the CCDs, the digital camera technology that we're all familiar with, and miniaturization. That is, miniaturization is largely driven, it seems now, by commercial uh, forces rather than than military ones. So in that sense, I think certainly the, the commercial forces are are pushing the technology more than more than the military, perhaps. 
Thank you. It's uh, Ray Harris from UCL. Uh, can I go back to the point a little while ago in the questions about Afghanistan and the idea that in the future we might may, maybe have a UN-based system, which mm. you recommended in your lecture, for developing a greater feeling of security. Um, the case with Afghanistan was an odd one because it was, as you use the phrase, it was buy to deny. Um, so people were happy about that because the companies selling the imagery were happy because they sold mm -hmm. the imagery at a good rate. The U.S. military was happy um, because it prevented Afghanistan uh, from getting the imagery, indeed anybody else from getting the imagery. Um, but if I link that to the U.N. principles on remote sensing, uh, 1986, um, what that says in principle 12, which is probably the key one, is that the sensed state, in this case Afghanistan, mm. has a right of access to uh, imagery which is openly available. Now, what it doesn't say, which is relevant, I'm coming to the point of the UN, is if those principles were changed not to be just specific to the sensed state, but to any state mm. would have access to the mm. data, a change of those principles would start to open the door to the way you've described it. If we then combine that with one other rather big factor, is that the UN principles were 1986 and were negotiated in the 1980s when the technology was Landsat type technology mm -hmm. yeah. of 80 meter pixels down maybe to 30 meter pixels. Yeah. But we're now, as you've just indicated, uh, as high as half a meter pixel, or in the case of um, QuickBird, 41 centimeters, but with that political dimension of 50 centimeters. So there is a dimension to people around the world saying, well, isn't it now time we revisited these mm -hmm. principles in the light of the technology changes? Yeah. And one thing you said towards the end was a greater openness and as to use Phil's phrase of democratization of information, whereby we as a society in the world get a greater stability uh, in, a, in, in this whole area of security. And I wonder what you thought of that thread of those UN principles. Yeah, thanks very much, Ray. I, I think you're right. Those, those trends that you're referring to, I think it is indeed time. In a sense, what I'm suggesting is to revisit the definitions of, that the UN lives by. Um, there's another related principle that um, is under debate, which is that the sensed state, some sensed states feel that they can deny uh, imagery to the sensing state. Uh, China has occasionally uh, suggested that they feel that way and has occasionally fired lasers at sensing satellites. Uh, and, and so that would, it's time also to revisit that, I think, as to, where, to what extent a sensed state or even a sensed person or a sensed organization has any rights to prevent uh, imaging by a, uh, a third party overflying in a satellite. So I think there's a lot of interesting issues that are, that the technology uh, requires us to revisit. Uh, uh, can you, you said in the last slide that you wouldn't talk about killer satellites or, or anti-satellite technology. Can, can you say something about it? What is the, the current state uh, of, of anti-satellite technology? And also, um, it sounds like there was an awful lot of uh, film flying around being ejected out of satellites all over the place. Um, presumably at some stage it fell into the wrong hands or was it all uh, absolutely perfect? Let me take the second one first. Uh, as far as I know, and I don't pretend to know everything by any means, uh, the only incident where a capsule actually fell into, at least an American capsule fell into Soviet hands, was the possible incident in Spitsbergen. Uh, as far as I know, there were no other incidents where a U.S. capsule may have gone astray. Uh, some of them did fall on the water, but they contain a in, in the in the base of the capsule there was a salt plug, 
which after about 24 hours, the salt dissolves and the capsule sinks into the, into the ocean. So the, the, the one or two of them ended up that way, uh, presumably on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Okay, coming back to the anti-satellite weapons, um, I suppose all, all I talk about in the book, all I cover in the book, is the fact that anti-satellite weapons are something to think about now. It is now possible, as China showed a year ago, for one country to knock out satellites, at least those in relatively low orbits. And it doesn't appear to require very, very sophisticated infrastructure to do so. So uh, any country which has a lot of satellites, which it's depending on, needs to be aware that another country could indeed uh, destroy those satellites, perhaps. And uh, there are various tactics that one can uh, try to adopt to, to uh, accommodate or to, to recognize to, to um, take, take account of that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it seems to me that the only, it is so relatively easy to destroy another satellite. If you can launch something into orbit and get it anywhere near another satellite, all you have to do is touch it in a sense. You have to hit it and it will destroy it. So basically you need to be able to replace your satellites very quickly if you want to be resilient in the face of an enemy who will knock out your own satellites. But that is one of the conclusions I feel is one is forced to accept that you need to be able to replace your satellites quickly, which also means they better not be too expensive because if you're going to have to replace them uh, 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 you know, pretty, pretty frequently or pretty quickly, they, they need to be fairly cheap and cheerful. John Hayeslord. I understand that in the decade following the Second World War, there was 50 Western Bloc aircraft brought down by the Soviets on surveillance missions. That's up until 1956 when the U-2 flights mm -hmm. started. As a consequence of that, I understand that Farnborough started seriously looking at the possibility of satellites mm. for reconnaissance in 53. Mm. And that lasted until the cancellation of the MAN program in 1960. Have you come across anything in that field? Uh, well, I, I didn't research that in particular. I did come across the fact that there was a program, that uh, there is a certain amount of information in the public record office um, but I didn't, I'm afraid, have time to do the research on it. Uh, as you say, once the, uh, in the when Macmillan uh, did his deal on uh, Skylark in, in the 60s and cancelled uh, the, the, the UK missile, that program came to an end and uh, may well have, uh, whether, whether there was any interaction with the US in that respect, I don't know. Um, so I, I'm afraid I haven't actually done research on that, but it, you're absolutely right. There was a British program, as far as I understand it, uh, which is some of which has now been declassified. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I think Pat's probably going to stay around for a while after, so if anyone else has uh, has questions, I think you'll be able to corner Pat, especially if you offer to um, to buy his book. He'll be particularly, <laughs> particularly keen to answer your questions. So at this point, I'd like to... Um, uh, Thank, thank Pat on behalf of the society, have a, a, small, a small token of the society's appreciation, and ask you all to, uh, to thank Pat again. <laughs>